Hello, America. Thank you so much for being back at the Sarah Carter Show. This is a huge day, big day. I know I say that often, but this really is. I mean, uh, President Trump is uh, about to sign an executive order, and I'm going to be talking about that executive order. I got it right here for all of you who are watching on YouTube. Yes, this is the draft executive order um, on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media platforms that want to act like publishers when they should just allow for free speech. But they only want to act like publishers and editors actually when they're dealing with President Trump or conservatives. So not not so much with anybody else's statements um, like China uh, putting out false information on Twitter or, you know, uh, especially Iran. We've seen like what they've put out there on Twitter, particularly about Israel um, and others like Kathy Griffin, who uh, not only had the most distasteful uh, joke in the world. Uh, I don't even consider it a joke, but when she held uh, the head of um, uh, some sculpture that she said was Donald Trump, a beheaded uh, Donald Trump, uh, and and did that. But she also put out a really, uh, I, I felt, it w- I would have reported her directly to Secret Service had I been the first one, but a tweet basically threatening Trump. Uh, it took him 24 hours for Jack at Twitter to get her uh, tweet off, right? To just, to to disappear it. But, you know, this this tweet that she had on President Trump, basically that she, you know, would like to inject him uh, with, uh, you know, air um, and that would do the trick. Uh, that was that was allowed to sit on Twitter for about 24 hours. So uh, right now, the president, who, by the way, was fact checked by Twitter when he put out his tweets, fact checked. Can you believe this? Can you believe this? Just because he was talking about mail-in ballots, which, by the way, even Congressman Jerry Nadler had talked about in New York. He had talked about how they can be tampered with. We've seen what happens when people, even in the, well, the guy, wasn't it, Jenny? You just wrote a story about a guy in West Virginia, right, who was tampering with those uh, with the mail-in ballots? Right. He was changing people's uh, party affiliation. And then he admitted to it and said, oh, it was a joke. Yeah, right. Some joke. Just the fact that he could do that, right? And that there's been concerns about this. And that even in in California, what is it, like Los Angeles? It's like 112% of voters. Like it's not even the actual number. Like there's more people voting than there are people. That's crazy. Doesn't that tell us that something's going on there? So President Trump had every right to put out his, you know, his feelings, his statements and concerns about voter fraud uh, because we have an election in November. And there's a lot of concern about this. I'm getting calls all the time from sources that are concerned about this all across the country. And so he puts out his statements and then Jack Basically, with his fact checkers, by the way, a fact checker, uh, the head of his fact checking is a guy by the name of Yoel Roth. Yoel Roth, who, by the way, is an anti-Trump 
person who has tweeted out that people in the administration are Nazis. He's compared Trump administration officials to Nazis. He's targeted President Trump specifically on Twitter. This is the guy that's supposed to be fact-checking our president? Fact-checking us? And then I love Mark Zuckerberg. This is interesting, Adam. Are you there? Because you're going to like this. Because he says, you know, we should stay out of it, that we shouldn't be monitoring, which we, I think we all agree with. Right, guys? Mark Zuckerberg says that we shouldn't be monitoring? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that we, yeah well, that's what he's <laughs> saying on Facebook, that he shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be getting involved in, like, policing, you know, people's thoughts. But yet they did that to me on a story, actually, on my website, Jenny, that you wrote. I mean, this was about Joe Biden. And it was, we were watching Joe Biden and, you know, he was on CNBC and everybody, it's been a back and forth, whether or not Joe Biden said, beat Joe Biden, which is what it sounded like to us, or be Joe Biden. And Jenny, you reached out to the Biden campaign, right? Absolutely. Received no response. And did they ever respond back? Nope. So... Basically, to set this up for every one of you out there who's listening, we basically published a story. Um, Everybody on the Internet was talking about it. Donald Trump Jr., um, Benny, uh, others who had this clip of Joe Biden basically saying he's going to beat Joe Biden. And I do we have that clip, Jenny? Can we get that clip and play it? During this opening, Adam, I'll find it. But I mean, I don't. I'm just trying to. You could find it, and whenever you find it, let's go back to that because I want everybody to hear that because I keep talking about it, but it makes no sense if you can't hear it. Well, anyways, we published the story. It was a very well balanced story, and we put it up on Facebook. We had it up on Twitter, and so Politifact basically fact checked us on. On Facebook, this is a group that Facebook uses to make sure there's no fake news out there. Okay, 85% of the people, maybe even 90% of the people that have heard this clip heard it the way we heard it. And in fact, CNBC didn't even have a transcript of the script until the controversy broke out. Let's see what it sounds like. I got you. Here you go. Okay, I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. Oh, there's no question. That's not even a question. I'll do it again. It's by, like, get out of here. Right. Uh, we need that one more time, just so everybody can listen for themselves. Here you I go. Want, I want everybody to hear this. I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. I'm listening. I can read his lips, Sarah. It's beat. It's 100% beat. I'm, you can beat, see it. Right? It's beat. But then when they did the transcript, Adam, when they did the transcript, they basically issued a transcript out there that says B. But it was way after the fact. It was after the fact that all of the everybody called him out on it. So that so, okay, let's just say, let's just say that that's what he intended and it came out like beat, right? But that doesn't make the story that we put out there false. Joe Biden has had innumerable gaffes. He set a precedent for this. It isn't like we were listening to somebody, um, you know, who's a great Nobel laureate or speaker, and we just made up some story. I mean, we I'm actually hearing the word beat. So do a lot of other people. So we did a follow-up story and said that CNBC said this, but still 
Facebook, what they do is, and this is how they do this to conservatives. They basically send out um, a statement when somebody tries to repost the story saying that they basically call us fake news, that this, that the story that we posted is not true. So they not only affect what people are seeing, they actually try to stop us from actually making money. And this is what they're doing to conservatives all the way around. And and it's because they support, you know, Biden. They're, they're Democrat supporters. I mean, we can see this. Look, we already saw that with at Jack, right? His fact checker, Yoel Roth, basically called people in the Trump administration Nazis on Twitter. Did they fact check Yoel Roth? For all of you out there that are listening to me right now, it is so frustrating because you work, we've worked so hard to get the truth out to the American people. And I'm going to go back to Russia hoax and the four years of covering those stories. The Washington Post, the New York Times, along with others, McClatchy, I can keep naming, wrote stories that were wrong, that were flat on their face wrong. Their sources lied to them. And they never once, even though they tweeted it out, even though they put it all over Facebook, even though they called the president of the United States, President Donald Trump, an asset of the Russian government, they basically said, our president, the United States president, that you, the American people, duly elected, was an asset of Russia. None of them were fact-checked. None of them. Absolutely not. They weren't told, hey, you got to take that story off and then repost the truth. No, they spread a lie that was a national security threat across the entire planet against your own president of the United States. That's what they did. And they got away with it. But then on Twitter, they shadow ban conservatives. This is a huge platform. Right now, I, I you know, I have over 1.1 million uh, followers, huge platform, but guess what? About 4,000 see my tweets, shadow ban, here and there. It, it depends. It depends. Um, there's algorithms that I'm not even aware of that they utilize to, you know, fiddle around with um, so that people actually don't see it, so that you're not on news feeds. There's also other issues, like on Facebook, where they want to monitor you where they want to monitor and decide what's real news, what isn't news, what should you, I mean, what kind of world do we live in? 1984, is this, a, you know, Orwell, Big Brother? Now, I'm not saying criminal behavior should be acceptable, but people have the right to say what they need to say. President Trump did nothing wrong in his tweets by questioning mail-in ballots, you know, just sending them out randomly to everyone. There's a difference if you're not in state and you're call, you know, you're getting a mail-in ballot because you're not going to be in your county to vote. You can't be there in person. That's different. But there is a problem with voter fraud, and we know that that exists, and we know that there's issues with that. But let me tell you this: I have never seen Twitter fact-check China, who suppresses its people who monitors everything their people are doing, who basically gives demerits to their people and credits, whether you're good to the Communist Party or not. I've never seen them do it to Iran, to the Ayatollahs, when they threaten Israel. I've never seen them do it to Turkey, 
when they put out false information about the Kurds. I mean, there's a lot of issues, right? I've never seen them fact check those Chinese Communist Party members and others who have said terrible things about President Trump and threatened him. I mean, for crying out loud, it takes over 17 hours to remove a threat to the president of the United States off of Twitter. It took like, what, two minutes for them to fact check the president? It's, it's just completely wrong. And the president has every authority to be putting out some an executive order because this is publicly traded companies. We're looking at Twitter and Facebook. They should not be publishers, right? They shouldn't be able to get away with this. We are in charge of our own speech. That's the job here, that protecting those First Amendment rights. Not Google, not Twitter, not Facebook, not what Mark Zuckerberg says, not what Jack says. I don't really care their politics. But they shouldn't be getting involved in mine. Look, they're the ones that said, oh, Russia, wait a minute, you know? It's Russia getting involved, Russia on Facebook, Russia on Twitter, bots on Twitter. No, it was their worse. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it's worse. When it comes to them, nobody has fact-checked anybody else here. It's like, you know, except for the president and the White House and people that support him or conservatives. And I, I know I'm angry about this. I know I'm I'm just beating it into the ground. You should be angry about right. this. It's frustrating. It is. It's very frustrating. We have a right as Americans to be able to exercise our right to free speech without these corporate entities telling us what we can and cannot say. And I see a lot of people out there now are pushing parlor, which is the alternative to Twitter, right? But we have to be able to do this. We have to be able to do this right. And we have to be able to speak to one another. And we have to be able to do that without the fear of someone coming after us or, you know, shutting down our right to speak. And I'm going to go right now into our health and human services because um, I have today Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan on with me. And we are going to be talking about COVID and we are going to be talking about China and the future of our nation and reopening our country, our great country, and how important that is. And I just want to touch on this a little bit before I go uh, to Secretary Hargan. But I want you to think about the effect the effects of what is happening to our nation with coronavirus, right? Being locked down and the dangers of being locked down for so long. I mean, so many people aren't getting their healthcare checkups. So many people are facing all kinds of uncertainty in the future, especially with their job situation. A lot of small businesses have shut down forever. Um, it's a really distressing time and we're all trying to find our way back. And I think what you'll hear is, you know, that Health and Human Services is saying, look, we want to get the word out that we need to reopen our economy. We need to get people back to work. People need to be doing what they can for their families, of course, mitigating the spread of coronavirus, but doing what they can for themselves and their families to get back into a sense of normalcy again. 
that we can't just be locked in our rooms. We can't just be living in this kind of fear. And and that's why I'm so grateful to have him on here. And by the way, he's going to be speaking about China. He's going to be speaking about Taiwan. Uh, it's it's impressive. His background is very impressive. He speaks Mandarin fluently. Um, Secretary Hargan does. He lived in Taiwan for a period of time. He worked in Hong Kong. Uh, he is the Deputy Secretary of of the Department of Health and Human Services. He is dedicated to promoting and enhancing the health and well-being of the American people. And he is here at the Sarah Carter Show. (laughs) Deputy Secretary Harrigan, thank you so much for being on the Sarah Carter Show. I really appreciate it. I know uh, Health and Human Services, you're extremely busy. This is a uh, historic time in our nation. We have not dealt with a pandemic like this. Uh, I think since the Spanish flu, something global like this. Uh, we now have 100,000 confirmed deaths. I saw President Trump's tweet and you know how distressed, uh, obviously, he is over the loss of life and concerned about the future and the direction of our nation. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain to everyone out there, to you, our listeners, um, what is happening and what we can expect in the upcoming months as we move towards the fall. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we have been working so strongly since the very beginning of this, of the outbreak that happened. I mean, you saw a lot of the early aggressive efforts that were undertaken by us at the direction of the president that have really helped uh, bring down the level of the outbreak that anyone had predicted uh, for this country to go through. I mean, you saw the early models and the fact that we've avoided that as a country. I mean, the president, we all are. uh, It's a a terrible loss for our country, as as you said, 100,000 deaths from this from this virus, uh, and you know the the fact of how much worse it it could have been if we hadn't undertaken all the aggressive actions and we hadn't adopted this approach, really a whole of government approach and a whole of America approach that we've been talking about, where we've brought private industry and the private sector in strongly uh, to to a help out with this, and have really looked to our state and local leaders uh, who have been so instrumental, uh, and individual Americans who've responded. Uh, in their millions and tens of millions to implement this in their own lives. And I think that has avoided so many deaths that otherwise would have taken place in this country. Oh, I think that's that's an incredible point. And I want to talk a little bit um, about the, you know, the PPEs, the personal protective equipment. And what we discovered at the very beginning of this where, you know, the administration basically inherited uh, from the Obama administration uh, a lack of equipment, a lack of personal protective equipment. And uh, we also saw China's actions um, uh, in purchasing an enormous amount of those uh, personal protective equipment uh, right after the outbreak occurred in China. And so we were kind of left abandoned, really, at the very beginning of this. And the president and the administration, along with HHS, worked double time to ensure that we would get this equipment and also point out the fact that there is a national security issue here for the United States, that we need to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., whether that with our in our healthcare system, whether that deals with medicine such as antibiotics and painkillers or personal protective equipment, what do you think the lessons learned here are, and uh, how do you feel the administration has handled this as we move into the n- upcoming months? 
Well, you know, the president since the very beginning has been concerned about the the issue of having American jobs, American manufacturing, and being strongly supportive of that. Uh, and so this is another lesson learned that that is that's not only is that a good idea for our economy, but it's a good idea for our health care as well. For us to be able to have those resources internally in the United States when we have a crisis like this is not just, as I say, a matter of money. It's also a matter of our lives. And when you look at the the situation, we've been here before, believe it or not, in a much less way, much lesser way in the Bush administration when I was at HHS before under President Bush, we had a situation where half of our flu vaccine one year uh, couldn't come from overseas. The manufacturer overseas really uh, had bad flu vaccine. They couldn't give it to us. We went around to our friends and uh, in the international community and said, can we have some flu vaccine? And they said, well, we've got to take care of our own people first. And, and that's understandable. But it meant that we were left with only half of the flu vaccine that we needed that year. So we put in place uh, systems to try to make sure we had more manufacturing capacity here in the United States. Some of those efforts succeeded, but some over time went away. Uh, and we put a lot of things in place in those days in terms of preparedness, a lot of which we've leaned on uh, in this, as opposed to when we were putting those things in place during the avian flu, the flu vaccine issue, which very few people remember at this time, uh, but also in the wake of 9-11, that all of those things that were put in place, we depended on those things foundationally in this crisis, but we're really going to have to step our game up even farther than what we had put in place before and not lose the lessons, which unfortunately over the years since uh, the Bush administration, we've forgotten about the need for us to have domestic manufacturing capacity for healthcare issues. So that's going to be obviously a major issue as we move forward, whether or not the crisis is mitigated. As we see, there's a reduction in the spread of COVID. And uh, that's 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 incredible. That is what we're hoping for. I know there's a concern about a second wave. And I want to talk about that before we go and discuss Taiwan and China and then uh, of course, I have to ask you about New York, the outlier uh, and the decisions made in New York, you know, under Governor Cuomo. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, what are your concerns about a second wave and what is the administration doing to kind of prepare for that? I mean, will there be another shutdown or can the American people expect to have things handled differently? Well, you know, the initial uh goals that were set out were now famously flattening the curve. That was the that was our phrase for the fact that we had to get our hospital and our healthcare system ready for an expected surge of coronavirus cases. And that means that we had to have all of those production capacity issues addressed, whether it's PPE, whether it's all the other things that we have to do and make the hospital system ready for so that we didn't end up with the terrible scenarios that we saw develop in China and Europe before coronavirus really came here so heavily. Now, over the summer and over these intervening months that we've had, we have, we have very strongly addressed those issues. Not completely by any means, but we've gone a huge way towards addressing those issues in terms of production of all the medical equipment and getting staff in place and making sure that those systems are ready. So hopefully by the time a unexpected or anticipated second wave happens in the fall, as one would see with other types of coronavirus or influenza, the respiratory illnesses that tend to have that seasonal uh, sort of ups and downs, that by the time we're there, we'll be much more prepared than 
frankly, we could have been on the appearance of a new virus that was just sort of announced uh, to, by China to the rest of the world uh, at the end, really December 31st of last year. So, you know, we've made a huge progress in the intervening uh, few months to address these issues. And I think that's going to continue over the course of the summer, which means that we should be much more prepared in the fall uh, when this goes around. And you saw the president announced Operation Warp Speed last That's week. That's right. Which, yeah, which is a, a huge, really groundbreaking effort on our part to be able to, to kind of uh, telescope in some ways or contract uh, the processes that we use here uh, in terms of our regulatory processes, in terms of our scientific processes to be able to kind of shorten uh, the vaccine and therapeutic and diagnostic development process. So we're, is we that put, because we're, yeah. of your working with the private sector as well? You're kind of cutting the red tape of that, you know, the R&D research and development that we've seen in government where sometimes it can be really elongated. And especially when you're doing work in the government and you're doing research and development, it can be a very long, tedious process. Is there is there something new that happened here? Um, you know, cutting out the red tape, cutting out the bureaucracy in order to effort this um, Operation Warp Speed to get a vaccine to the public? Exactly. So, so in other words, like in many cases, we can conduct things in parallel rather than doing them one after another after another. So instead of doing things that are kind of, you know, one, two, three, four, each in step one after another, we're able to do things in parallel and able to get eyes on that by having a lot of effort on, on our part within the government and then partnering with the private sector, not having an antagonistic relationship with them, but in, in other words, partnering with them. So we have public-private partnership on these issues because the, the private sector wants to solve these problems just like we do, just like the public wants them to be solved. So instead of us having a combative relationship with them. We want to have a collaborative relationship with them and be able to work with them to say, you know, here's where we can safely work through these issues, not undercutting because American people are going to want a safe vaccine. They're going to want safe therapeutics. We all do, frankly. Right. But we're and, and so to be able to to be able to work through that creatively and flexibly, I think that's where a, a, something like this, a crisis like this really draws forth a lot of the great creative capacity, both on the part of the government as well as the private sector to be able to solve these problems, to be able to get these products done and out and to be able to address this. Address this. So I think it's really drawn out. If there's a silver lining in this, it's that it has really drawn and underlined both the ingenuity of the country and also the capacity of the country to address issues like this, even when it's just sprung on us all right. of a sudden. So do you believe that we will have a vaccine before the end of the year? I mean, is that something that we can hope for? Well, you know, we, we of course we can hope for that. You know, science and nature don't cooperate with the government fiat that's or our right. wishes, <laughs> or our wishes, right? I mean, that's right. what I mean, we have I mean, we wouldn't have even moved forward on this and signed the contract with the companies if we didn't have a good reason to. Uh, it's not just kind of a hope. You know, we're not talking about kind of, uh, you know, a, a lick and a promise here. But what we're talking mm -hmm. about is something that we have a good reason to believe that the that the that the products that we're putting our money and our efforts behind show a, a really good promise on these. We got a lot of candidates. The ones we put our we kind of put our effort behind are those that we sort of see uh, being at a, a much stronger point 
at this juncture. And but we're going to continue to work with all the candidates. We've got a lot of companies that are coming forward, as you can as you can imagine, coming forward to try to solve this problem. Whether it's vaccine, in other words, preventing the illness from ever getting there, or therapeutic, meaning something that if you get it, this helps you kind of cure or mitigate uh, the illness after you've got it. So. On either one of those fronts, you know, we're trying to find out the strongest candidates, kind of help uh, put those, put our efforts behind those and get those quickly done. But as I say, we're hoping uh, on this case, but we got a lot of good, really smart people involved in all fronts to try to bring this, uh, bring this, wrestle this kind of disease to the ground. Well, that's right. I mean, this really is a global crisis. Um, when you think of the impact that the, the the virus itself has had on our economy, on our health, uh, on our future, it's enormous. And I want to talk a little bit about China's responsibility here, because the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, failed to inform the world of the spread of this virus in the beginning. I mean, we, we can see that, we can see the evidence mounting against them. Now we see what's happening with Taiwan. I thought you wrote an enormously great and important column for the Epoch Times in this. Um, a lot of people don't know that you speak Mandarin, that you lived in Taiwan for some period of time. I want right. you to talk about that and the importance of this because when we think of what happened with China, we think of this as a national security issue. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest fears our government has had for some time. You know, an outbreak of a virus, um, economic shutdown. Uh, now we're actually living it. What was China's responsibility? How can the United States hold China accountable for this? And what needs to be done as far as China's actions we're seeing right now in Taiwan and the rest of the world as they encroach and continue to expand? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think, you know, as, as you point out, I did, I did spend some, some time in Taiwan studying Chinese and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I feel very close to the country. Uh, and I, I spent a time actually even, uh, in, in college and also my part of my working career, uh, in East Asia, uh, based in, based in China, working throughout East and Southeast Asia. And, and so this is an area that I, I, know, I know fairly well that the Chinese really fell down on the job uh, in addressing this. I think that they thought that they could contain it. I think that they thought that, that, if, uh, that if they sort of downplayed the virus, that it would go away uh, in some ways. That obviously did not happen. You look at the statistics that they've collected on their own response, and you see the comparison to uh, any other jurisdictions, in Europe, North America, and the Americas, anywhere. And you see it just a, it's incredibly, now at this point, a real outlier. And a lot of the response that was done by other countries was based on those bad statistics, based on those bad numbers. So that and and so an attempt to kind of uh, uh, I would say to obscure it. Possibly it could have been mistakes. It could have been that they didn't really understand what they were dealing with. A part of it could be that they deliberately tried to obscure what was happening in the country to kind of you know sort of maintain their their image uh, on the on the uh, international stage. Whatever the source of it was, what really should have happened already is for them to sort of c kind of come to the healthcare community, the scientific community, and say you know. How can we correct this? In other words, let the let the community in, let the medical community and the scientific community in at least, and and see what actually took place in China. Instead, there's been sort of continuous kind of rear guard actions uh, by the by the Communist Party 
to kind of obscure what happened here. And, you know, in the middle of that, of course, Taiwan, uh, which is a country right there that's had a very successful response to this, that had really constant communication and uh, back and forth travel between Taiwan and China. And yet when the outbreak happened, Taiwan adopted a real model uh, response to the coronavirus, and they did very well with it. So why aren't we allowing Taiwan's uh, their model, their response, the information that they gathered, why aren't we paying attention to that? Now, we are, the United States is, obviously, but the international community is not. And that's not really appropriate in a healthcare context. This is a, this is a country uh, that is, and that is you know, 20 plus million people that has a very sophisticated healthcare system that was one of the first countries to be exposed to the coronavirus that adopted a really good model in this, and the information is not being shared uh, in, through the international organs that should be responding to a healthcare crisis of this. Well, kind. one of those is the WHO, is the World Health Organization. I want to play you a clip. I want everyone out there to listen to this clip. Now, there's going to be a moment of silence. Uh, there's going to be a moment of silence because Dr. and I'm going to pronounce, I don't want to mispronounce his name, Aylward, who's the number two at uh, the WHO to Dr. Tedros, is basically being asked a question about Taiwan from a journalist, and he refuses to recognize Taiwan. He refuses to recognize Taiwan as a separate entity of China. Um, Adam, can you play that and just listen for the dead space? Nothing's going to go wrong there. It's just he does not know what to say to this reporter. Would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? Hello? With the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear. You. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah. Let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. Hang up. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. And, um, you know, when you look across all the different areas of, uh, of China, they've actually all done quite a good job. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting us to participate. And, uh, and good luck as you go forward with the battle in Hong Kong. I mean, this is the World Health Organization completely, completely dismissing Taiwan altogether. And we know that the WHO also early on sent out, you know, a statement saying that it didn't appear that this virus was contagious human to human transmission. Here is a, you know, the World Health Organization that you would think we could count on as a global partner to fight this specific out type of outbreak, right? A global pandemic. And we can't even rely on them. What do you think's going on here? And because you you do have that connection to Taiwan, I mean, what went through your mind when you heard this, when you saw this? What is well, going on here? Yes, I mean, you know, the WHO. So there's a there's a few things going on here. You know, the WHO, uh, which has a tremendous mission, you know, and and a tremendous history. Uh, frankly, of addressing these kind of things from, you know, the the getting rid of smallpox in the past, being 
coordinator of so many and the, mm -hmm. the source of so many good things in the past in the healthcare area and an organization that obviously the people there understand things like that the virus viruses don't respect international borders. They go everywhere. And you can't you can't kind of adopt the same kind of political posturing that another organization might adopt, but the WHO really shouldn't be doing that. Now, and, and that's one part of it. Another part of it is that, you know, they were relying on information from China just to just as a, a, a slight amount of excuse for them. They were relying on information from China, just like everyone was, just like Europe was, just like other countries were relying on that information. And that information was wrong. Uh, it right. was it was it was bad information that was being put out, whether that was done by mistake errors or deliberately, it was wrong. And that's that happens in science, it happens in medicine, but when that happens, what you're supposed to undertake is a correction of that. You're supposed to say, you know, this is a matter of science. People got things wrong. You correct that and you go on. You don't persist in sort of going back to the same thing and repeating those errors. Well, that's fundamental the to this entire enterprise. Well, and the Chinese government, and we, we saw that they knew for some time, I mean, there was an outbreak, we saw what was happening in Wuhan, we would see the videos, I would see the, you know, citizen journalists would be pushing videos out of uh, China, trying to get word out to the people, and the Chinese really didn't close down their borders until late January, uh, where there was quite a few people flying out of Wuhan. I talked to people in Italy that said that, you know, they continued to have flights coming in. Uh, to Italy, where uh, from China. And so the Chinese, it appears that they deliberately did not share this information with the world. And, you know, that is a big concern for me is like, how do we hold? And it's difficult because we're dealing with a nuclear nation, a very powerful nation, China. We want to be very careful. But how do we learn from this in an effort to mitigate this type of problem, a potential? a disaster in the future when we're dealing with nations like, you know, China that refuse, basically, we could see that WHO and other people are, are, uh, have succumbed to their political pressure. Um, how do we deal with this as a nation and protect our own citizens from this happening again, I guess is, is where right. I'm going. Well, some of that is, you know, the, the president has called very strongly for WHO reforms to happen. And that, and that he's he's called that out. He came under criticism internationally for doing that, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, we at HHS are going to, you know, we're going to look at at reforming whatever we need to do uh, to strengthen our systems. Uh, and no one is immune from this. Neither WHO nor anyone uh, is immune from the the sort of oversight and and reflections that everyone's going to have to undertake in the wake of this pandemic to see where the system can be strengthened where we can reform the systems to make them better uh, the president is just saying what he's he is plainly speaking about what needs to be said which is that our international system and and led by WHO in the case of these kind of things uh, has to be reformed and strengthened so that this doesn't happen again and WHO clearly in some ways has come under pressure from China uh, to adopt certain policies, to take certain stances in this. And that's something that's going to have to be looked at as well, is what their response was in this crisis. You know, right. there have been the, the good and bad 
have been mingled in here, and that's unfortunate in that I think that they've un- they've taken steps that they didn't really have to take, and they've taken stances that they didn't really have to take, and that aren't that aren't consistent with the WHO's responses that have happened in the past. Uh, and so I think that that's something that clearly the president and we all recognize. And I think WHO recognizes it as well. Uh, if mm-hmm. they if they if they took a good honest look uh, at what they've done, uh, that they would they would recognize that themselves. I, yeah, I think that's important. Or you know, we're going to pull their funding, and uh, other other countries may pull funding too if it continues. One question about oversight as we as we look at this, uh, New York City. I I knew I was going to bring it up. Governor Cuomo. It's a big scandal now. Uh, patients that have actually gone uh, from the hospitals into nursing facilities and exposed those most vulnerable. Now, the biggest thing that everybody kept saying over and over again, we need to wear masks, we need to, you know, take care of our most vulnerable, that being our elderly, as well as those who maybe have underlying health conditions, people with HIV, cancer, um, heart disease. And then we have a, you know, a state like New York and a city like New York City, where you have, you know, you have the USS Comfort, you have the Javits Center, you have right. all these places where patients could have gone to recover from COVID, but they were transferred to nursing homes. And now Andrew Cuomo, and I want to play a clip right here, and then I want to get your take on this. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is actually blaming the nursing homes. Can you play that clip, Adam? The obligation is on the nursing home to say, I can't take a COVID positive person. I'm too crowded. I'm too busy. I don't have enough PPE. Whatever the answer is, doesn't even matter. It's if they say I can't take the person, they can't take the person. So that's that's how it works. I got to tell you, I have friends in New York City, one of them who I just spoke to today, somebody who lost um, an in-law uh, at a nursing home uh, after they were exposed. And they, they're they just like, I don't see how this isn't manslaughter. How he knew, he knew these patients, you know, could be exposed to COVID. Why were they transferring them there? And why didn't they put them in a different type of facility? What What is HHS doing, looking into? I mean, I know New York's an outlier, but right. in order to mitigate this type of problem in the future. Well, you know, it, New York is an outlier in this in this circumstance uh, with regard to their nursing homes. As you well pointed out, you know, we've known since the beginning of this disease outbreak that it that the it it goes for the old and it goes for the medically frail, and those are combined in nursing homes. Those are the places where the elderly and the medically frail and the elderly medically frail are. Uh, that's been the problem. It was the problem all the way along in Europe and here. That's been the issue. To require these patients to be taken from the hospitals to the nursing homes is a real problem. And I think that has to be faced by the state, uh, that that regardless of what somebody says now about, well, they could have decided not to do it or they, they, they shouldn't have done it if they couldn't have, when the state says this is what you're required to do, a lot of places feel that's what they're going to have to do. And it is an outlier in that sense that you know other states didn't require this in the same way. And, or it wasn't felt to be required because it wasn't stated so strongly by the state, essentially, that they better take them. Now, you can say, well, they should have done this, they should have done that. But when the state's saying strongly, these patients are coming out in their hundreds, and you're going to have mm-hmm. to take them into your nursing home. 
they're going to do that. They're going to try to be do the best job that they can, but they they're afraid they're going to get shut down. They're going to get fined. They're going to get investigated. Uh, they're going right. to get sued. They're going to lose funding. Not doing it. They're going to lose funding. They're going to get sued. All the things that a state can do to the nursing homes that are in its jurisdiction. So you know it's disingenuous to say you know well you you could have not done this. There are plenty of places states that this didn't happen. Uh, but it happened, and there's a reason why the public has recognized this as a problem in New York, because it is an outlier uh, in this sense. You know, there are plenty of places where there have been nursing home outbreaks, but and and that happened. It happened right at the beginning. Uh, that was, you know, the the situation Washington that happened State. in Washington State. We knew this as an issue since the very beginning that this disease came to the United States. This has been an issue. It's been highlighted. It's been highlighted in fact. It's been highlighted in the press. Everyone knows that this has been an issue since the very beginning. So it's really disingenuous to start saying that, you know, well, things could have been avoided. If you're the head of a state and you're requiring that of your nursing homes, there's a, there's a clear consequence of that. Uh, you know, there should have been, if you're going to say that, it should have been surrounded with, but you don't have to. <laughs> you know, we're requiring it, but uh, you, you really don't have to. There are plenty of places that had requirements on how to transport patients and, and keep them safe. Our own, our own guidelines in this area said that a nursing home may take a patient. As long as there's plenty of safety around it, as long as they put in place all these the guidelines and the way that they treat the patient, where they're put, are they kept are they kept away from other patients that aren't uh, known to be infected with the coronavirus? We have plenty of things that were already online that were already put in place by us guidelines that that uh, could have been done, but that said a nursing home may take. A patient as long as they can keep them safely because in some cases that's where the patients are that's their home in the nursing well home. yeah that's if it's an isolated ward right if right. it's an isolated ward if the outbreak right. is within the nursing home but actually transporting covid patients to a nursing home where there isn't an outbreak seems to work against what we have been told you know and when i hear governor cuomo i'm just kind of like whoa wait a minute you know you from the beginning have been pounding just like everyone else we got to protect our elderly we got to wear our face masks. We are locking down. We're shutting down small businesses, big businesses. We're going to mitigate the spread of this virus. And then you take people that have COVID and put them in a, you know, in a nursing home where it spreads because it's a virus. I mean, there's nothing we can do to stop the spread of a virus. You sneeze, you cough, you touch something. It exists on a handle. It doesn't get wiped down. You know, somebody carries it into a room. And I think that's what's just so frustrating and infuriating um, you know, on the part of people, New Yorkers, that have actually been affected by this, when they hear Governor Cuomo say something like that, has HHS done anything to like to talk to governors of states and say, look, this is what we require? Because I I mean, I think with New York, it was really an outlier because we have um, we had so many other facilities that people could have been transferred to. We, we have since the very beginning. I mean, these these guidelines came out fairly early from our uh, from our nursing home regulatory agency that came out cms put these guidelines out uh early and so i mean so we've are we've already been there and we we already had guidelines about nursing home safety in place already uh and then had specific things that were put in place you know for dealing with the coronavirus, the fact that you have an elderly medically frail population living together in congregate care would seem that you have to have the most rigorous attitude towards maintaining safety there. 
that has got to be one of your areas that's the most, that's the, the biggest tinderbox in this situation. And to then say, you're coming out of the hospital, you've been infected with the disease, go back into this circumstance, you're required, and they're required to be accepted into this, full stop, that's good. That's a situation where there's going to be a lot of problems. And it required right. there to be, at the same time, a really different attitude towards uh, towards uh, maintaining safety. And it was just kind of just here's the requirement, uh, go do. Uh, and you heard that in the you heard that in the clip. Well, if you if you hadn't, you should have not done it. In, in other words, right. you shouldn't you shouldn't have you shouldn't have listened to me. That's yeah. not that's not a very good response. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. But before I let you go, Secretary Hargan, I wanted to get your take. Um, what do you think, uh, especially with HHS, what is your goal for the future? What are you looking at right now? What message would you like to deliver to the American people? Uh, I know all of us, uh, you know, rely so much on uh, especially right now that we're in lockdown and what the future, you know, role of government is going to be in all of this and, and what we can do to help move the process along and do it safely as we reopen our businesses and, and maybe head back to school. Well, you know, one of the things that we are, we are trying to get the message on out on is that there are health consequences to the lockdown. This is not a situation where it's the healthcare versus the economy. This is a situation that the longer lockdowns go on, the healthcare effects that aren't part of the coronavirus, meaning heart disease, cancer, strokes, uh, mental health issues, behavioral health issues, suicide, all those issues go up the longer a lockdown happens. People need to go in and get the care that they need. Most Americans do not die of infectious disease. Most people die of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, chronic COPD. All those issues really need to be addressed, and we have to address them right now. Patients need to take care of themselves. They need to start going back into the healthcare system and taking care of themselves because this is not health versus dollars. This is health versus health at this point. And we need to keep that in mind while we're dealing with the coronavirus. And we're going to be dealing with this coronavirus, trying to address it with vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, all the armamentarium that we have in the United States and globally for dealing with this disease. But at the same time, we need to make sure that Americans take care of their health in all the ways that they that they normally would be doing. And people put that on pause for weeks and now months. And we have to make sure that we at HHS get that message out to take care of themselves on all the other all the other fronts that need to be taken care of while we're dealing with coronavirus. So those those are the consequences that policymakers and leaders need to consider very strongly while they're talking about reopening their localities, reopening their economies, their cities, counties, and states. I couldn't agree with you more, Secretary Hargan. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the health of Americans, uh, you know, being locked down, we've seen the effects of that and we've seen the effects on people both with a rise in suicides as well as abuse in the homes, um, health care issues that aren't being dealt with. We really need to get back out, back into the open safely. Uh, I agree safely, but uh, but with vigor and 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 get our nation back on track. That's that's the health for everyone. Everyone's yeah. health is reliant upon that. I can't thank Brilliant. you enough. 
for being with me today. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back on. And thanks, thanks for sir. taking all of my questions about China and Governor Cuomo. I know I kind of threw those at you sideways, but <laughs> but it was very important. Thank you, Sarah. Deputy Harrigan's emphasis on the fact that we need to start coming out of this lockdown and really focusing on what is going to make our nation healthier and us as individuals healthier is so important. I think that was the most important part of the whole interview, actually. It's at the very end where he's saying, you know, look, HHS, our goal is to get the word out to the American people that you need to get with your doctors again, that you need to get outside again. You need to do it safely, but you need to get your family back out again just so we can get to a point where we're not suffering from what's happened to us from being under this lockdown for three months. I mean, I think there is a tendency for us to feel like, you know, the longer we're in place, the longer we're locked down. I mean, especially for some people, it's a really scary thing to say, well, you know, I'm going to get back into the public, right? You're out there. You're hearing all these stories. What does COVID mean? I mean, even for me, it's tough to, to get through all of the mess, to figure out like, what does this really mean for me and my life and my family? When we see all the numbers of people that have been affected by it in New York and in other places across the country, now 100,000 people, right? That number is very daunting and it's very scary. And I, you know, my heart goes out to all the families that have been affected by the coronavirus outbreak and what China has done to us. Because I'm gonna go further than Deputy Harrigan, I believe I believe that China is responsible for this. I'm not going to give them any out. They knew they should have contacted the United States, the World Health Organization, let everybody know they should have locked down Wuhan. They shouldn't have allowed people to travel freely for that entire month. The lockdown didn't happen until the end of January. They knew about this. They knew about this in December. Chinese have top doctors. The, the Chinese Communist Party understands what's going on. They're all over the planet. They are, you know, very adept in science. And they knew what was happening. And they knew what was happening in China. And they were trying to hide it or they didn't care. So those are the two, two options, neither of which are any good. And both of which should hold them responsible for what has happened to our nation and what is happening to people all over the globe. But Secretary Harrigan is right. We have to get out of this lockdown. We can't just sit and fear and wonder when this is all going to end. We need to move forward. And that requires us doing what we need to do, listening to our, you know, our local authorities and taking precautions, but getting our schools back open. We can't afford to lose more people in this country, uh, not to the extenuating circumstances surrounding this. We've seen a rise in suicides. We've seen uh, people not make their medical checkups. There's a lot of fear that there's a lot of people that are missing diagnosis of cancer, of heart disease. And uh, as Americans, we just can't continue that path and also the effects on our small business. So I think you, me, we, we've we got to move forward. We've got to figure out a way to do this. We cannot endanger 
our nation any more than it's already been endangered. And we got to put the blame where the blame belongs. And I believe that's squarely on China. Now, before I let you go, before we walk away from this incredible show, the Sarah Carter show, um, and our, you know, and our discussions on coronavirus, I don't want to leave without going back to what we discussed in the beginning, which is, you know, what is happening with Twitter, Facebook, our social media. I want to play the clip one more time, just one more time. This is Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden on CNBC. This is what Facebook is now basically targeting me for. Jenny wrote a story. Everybody was writing about it because it sounds like Joe Biden is saying beat Joe Biden. Uh, can you, Adam, play that clip again for our listeners so that they can hear this? And I would love for you guys to write me and let me know what you think. And just before I play it, what, they, listen to what is said before it. Why would he say be Joe Biden instead of beat Joe Biden? I, Here's the clip. I have no I'm idea. To say that I have a let me get that a little clean. Here you go, from the beginning. I'm prepared <laughs> to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. Uh, I, I mean, I, even the emphasis on the word and the inflection that he used in that sentence sounded like he wanted to say Donald Trump. No, Sarah, people I've make had a mis- record for over 40 years and I'm going to beat Donald Trump. But he said Joe Biden. And people make mistakes. Like, obviously, we don't want to just hammer him for making. But like, this has no, been one after course. another and another. And like, what is happening? Well, but he has made these gaffes before, Adam. Jenny, we've written how many stories about his gaffes? Countless. I mean, countless, countless stories about all of these Biden gaffes. And yet Facebook is trying to damage me because we wrote this story. And they are sending out this notification. Adam, your friend just got one, right? When he tried to repost the story? Yeah, I was just scrolling through Facebook as we were in between takes. And there it is. Just another person who likes to post very political things, of course, just got flagged. And it was the exact same thing that we were just talking about. Right. So PolitiFact basically went out and said, oh, but Biden's team said it was B. And after the fact, CNBC had to concur with them. So uh, he said, B, don't worry about what you're listening to. That isn't the case. So throw common sense out the window, folks. Nothing to see here. And now they're going to flag me and make it impossible for people to get my stories until I comply with them, which is probably going to be that we have to take our story down, which I will refuse to do because I will not take it down because Biden said, beat Joe Biden. And that's what I hear. And I'm going to go with my common sense here. Now, could I be wrong? Maybe. But that is not a false story. Now, we followed up. We did follow up, right, Jenny? And we wrote a story that CNBC and the Biden campaign says that it uh, was not beat. It was B. So we put that up there. We're very accurate at SarahCarter.com. We're going to tell you both sides of that story. I want you to go to SarahCarter.com where you can actually see the story on Joe Biden. And then let me know yourself what you think. What do you think he's saying? And if you think the story is false, I would love to hear from you. And remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carter DC. And we will not allow Facebook or Twitter or any of these other platforms tell us what we need to say, how we need to say it, and who we need to believe in and who we need to support. We are our own people. We're Americans. And we're not 
about that. This is not communist China, folks. And we're not even going to let private companies fit. Thank you so much for being here at the Sarah Carter Show. It was great to have you here with me. And remember, folks, we are taking the story back with your help. God bless.